Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the well here at STSA. Glad that you all are joining us here. Welcome back after a 4th of July weekend. Hope everyone had a great weekend. We took a pause in this series last weekend to talk about uh, some uh, potentially hot topics, but we'll leave that aside for right now. But also I want to take a pause because so many people told me they'd be out of town and they really were enjoying this series and they didn't want to have to miss it. So we took a pause last week, but we're continuing today. Our series is titled Bringing an Ancient Faith to a Modern World. And that's what we are all about here at STSA because this is our new tagline, our new slogan. We even made t-shirts and once it's in a t-shirt, it's there forever. Because this is what we feel is our mission in life is to take this ancient faith, okay, which was given to us by Christ upon the foundation of the apostles and to bring it to the modern world in which we live. And that's why I said in the beginning, here's kind of our, our, our key thought for this series, which, we're gonna un which we've been unpacking every week piece by piece, which is the Orthodox Church is the original Christian church established by Jesus Christ himself upon the foundation of the apostles. We believe that when Jesus Christ was on this earth, that he came and he did lots of miracles and he did lots of cool stuff and he taught lots of cool ideas, but that really wasn't the purpose of his trip. His purpose wasn't to start a philosophy or purpose wasn't to write a book or purpose wasn't just to leave some good ideas about how to be nice to one another. We believe that Jesus wanted to establish his church and for his church to take on a shape. And we believe not that it was a physical church in terms of like a building, but it was an actual church and it had actual guys in it. Guys named Peter, guys named James, guys named John. That Jesus started a church and said, hey, Levi, come join my church. And Jesus met a Samaritan woman one, one day and said, I want you to be one of my following. I want you to be part of my church. May not have used those exact words, but we believe that when Jesus left this earth, there was a church and it was fully functioning and it was a fantastic, amazing church. And you can read all about this church in the book of Acts of the Apostles, the fifth book of the New Testament. The question is, is what happened to that church after the New Testament writings cease? The New Testament writes up through the end of the first century, roughly. So up until the year 100. What happened to that church, which was so strong when Jesus established it, when you had Peter walking down the street and his shadow was healing the sick? And you had St. Paul preaching and they threw him in prison and then the doors of the prison were open. What happened to that church that was so vibrant and so strong and so powerful and so miraculous? Well, we believe that as Jesus told us, that that church would never die. That he said, even the gates of Hades cannot conquer my church. And we believe in the same way that Christ died and was buried and then rose again. We believe from that moment that he rose again, he is alive forever. He, the head, as well as he, the body. And the church today, in the same way that we believe that the head is alive, we believe that Christ is alive, no Christian doubts that, we believe that same church is alive as well. And that church didn't die. Contrary to popular belief, some people believe this today, which is that the church was strong in the book of Acts, strong in the first century, and then it kind of died for 1,500 years, and then kind of came back to life. And there was kind of this void where we don't know what happened to the church, and it was a dead church. We don't believe that because Jesus promised us that he would never leave his church, and his church would always be strong. Where's that church today? That's the Orthodox church that we're talking about. The original Christian church established by Jesus upon the foundation of the apostles, that's the church that we have here today. Because what we believe is those disciples of Jesus had disciples. And those disciples had disciples. 
And then those disciples had disciples who had disciples who had disciples who had disciples who had disciples. And that broke unbroken chain, which started back in Jerusalem, back in the first century, continues today. And I will say this is my claim to fame right here. This is my claim as an Orthodox priest, is that my ordination as a priest. Who ordained me as a priest? Well, I was ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody. Who was ordained by somebody 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 who was ordained by Saint Mark the evangelist and Saint Mark received his ordination from where from the hands of Christ himself so what i say is my ordination didn't come from myself it didn't come from some guy it didn't come because i graduated some school or got some degree my ordination came from Jesus Christ himself through somebody, through somebody, through somebody. This is how the church has always functioned in a discipleship model, and we believe that it continues to this day. The goal of this series is to look at that church in the beginning and see what that church looked like for all those years and to see, is that church still functioning and still alive? And I'm telling you the answer, okay, right off the bat, is that we will see it is alive here and it is kept in the Orthodox Church. Last time we met, each week we're taking a different aspect of the church and seeing how the first century church, how the New Testament church, how the church that Jesus established, how we see that still today. First week, we talked about tradition. And we talked about tradition with a capital T and tradition which so many people in our modern world think that tradition, oh no, you can't go to a church that has tradition because that's how the faith gets corrupt. And we talked about last time, it's actually the exact opposite. That without tradition, that's how the faith becomes corrupt. But what tradition is for us is a baton. It means that all that I teach is what I've been given. And the person who taught me was given by somebody, given by somebody, given by somebody. And it's tradition that puts the fence for us on Christianity. And if you don't have tradition, then you have every man for himself and everyone is free to teach and think whatever he or she thinks. Then you have chaos and anarchy and that's not the way Christ established it. That was last time. Today what we're going to talk about is the most visible difference between our ancient faith and the modern world in which we live. And that is, we are going to talk about how we worship. We're going to talk about how we worship in a liturgical setting. But before we do, start you off with a story. Story goes back to uh, two years ago when my daughter first started uh, her new school two years ago, three years ago, either two or three years ago. Okay. When she just started her school, she's in third grade. Okay, she wasn't third. Was she in third grade or second grade? First grade. She was in first grade. Sorry. She's in third grade now. She's somewhere between first and eighth grade right now. Okay, so this was her, this was first grade for her. This was first grade for her. So I don't know how many years ago that was. I can't do the math right now. This is the beginning of her first, of, of, of her, of her first grade year. And we had just moved to a new area. So she just started a new school. So at, at the time she's going to this new school, they had this event. I don't remember what event it was, Thanksgiving, Halloween, whatever one of these events that they have. And all the parents need to come and do whatever kind of parent thing we do. My wife works, okay, so I have a more flexible schedule, so I decide I'm going to go to this event. Here's the scene. You show up at this event, okay, and I was late, okay, which made the whole thing worse right off the bat. So I was late getting in, and this is my first time visiting the school and I'm dressed like this because I'm just coming from a meeting or whatever I'm coming from. And I don't know how anything works. So I show up and the first guy I'm greeted with is the security guard. And the security guard, and I clearly don't know what I'm doing. Like all the other, like now I know you go in, you check on, you check in this, you register. And all the parents who know what they're doing just go in. It's a two second process. Me, I'm like, 
you know, hello, my name is, and I'm shaking hand and introducing and welcome to the well. No, not the well. You know what I mean? And I, so I'm kind of fumbling, all right? And I'm looking kind of strange in this place. So get through the security guy, points me to this room. Of course, I don't know where that room is. He takes me to that room. I show up in that room, and you see there was some kind of like display. I don't know. It was like science projects, but I don't know what they were doing. Like Indian thing or Native American. I don't know what it was. So we get there, and all the kids are over here doing their little thing over here. Here you have a bunch of parents. You probably have 50 kids and probably about 25 parents. What's the difference between me and every one of those parents? They're all moms. I'm me. And I'm not just a dad. I'm me, dad. So here's the strange dad, looks strange than everybody else, and I walk in, and then I was taken instantly back. It was like sec seventh grade, the, the, the first dance, okay? So you're just kind of standing in the corner. Of course, no one's talking to me. I'm like the, the nerdy kid, and I'm just like praying. I'm checking my phone. I'm saying, you know what I mean? And I grab a drink, and I'm just, you know, wishing anyone would come talk to me because I'm like the outcast guy. On top of that, here's the part that really made me stand out like a sore thumb. What do parents do at these events when they go watch their kids do whatever thing in school? What do all parents do? Take pictures. That's where you go. Everyone there is taking pictures, and there's everyone taking pictures. At the time, my daughter had instituted a rule. No pictures allowed. Okay? She was like, the only way you're allowed to come is if you promise not to take pictures. So I promise I would not take pictures. So not only I'm the only man in the room, not only I'm the guy who walked in late and looked like Bin Laden, not only I'm the guy who doesn't know anybody else in the room, but everyone else is here taking pictures, and I'm standing in the corner pretending I don't know anybody. I don't know if they had a button in the school that was call 911 right away, but if there was, everyone was pushing that button, okay? Lady comes up to me, approaches me, standing in the corner trying to mind my own business, and says to me, the common question people ask me when they see me, what are you? What are you? And usually, when I'm more confident, I would go back like I'd jab back, you know? Like, what are you? Like, I'm hungry. What are you? You know what I mean? But in this situation, there was no time for joking because I'm in, in, in a desperate situation. So I'm like, I know she's trying to say, like, I'm a priest. And I'm like, I'm a, you know, like, I, I don't really, I, I, whatever you, like, I'm nothing. I'm whatever you are. I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm like everybody else. I'm, I'm, like, I'm nothing. But she started asking me more questions. I was able to muster up enough confidence to begin to tell her, well, you know, I'm a priest, orthodox. I don't know what I said to her. Something I said to her, the floodgates opened. She became my new best friend. And she started telling me, she's a very spiritual lady. Okay, we became friends, our kids are friends. She's a very spiritual lady. And she began to voice her frustration with her church. And she began to say things like, I remember the one thing I remember vividly, is she was, say, she was saying there's no reverence in their church. We've lost the reverence in a modern church. Okay, she was from an evangelical background. There's no reverence in the church. And she was saying, I don't know if I'm going to a worship center every Sunday or a, a, a fashion show. And she was going off. And I don't know what I said, but she just started pouring out. And then by the end of it, she kept going on and on and on. And she said the following. She said, is this really how they worshiped in the New Testament? Is this really how they worshiped in the New Testament? Is what we see today really how they worship in the New Testament? And that's our question for today, ladies and gentlemen. That's the question that I posed to you. And like I've been talking about, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. So this is what I'm doing. I'm posing the question to you, and I'm going to make a case for why what we do today is what they did in the New Testament. But the question that I have for you, I want to start open your mind, my opening remarks or whatever, is I want you to start to think to yourself, the way the modern world worships today, is that how they worshiped in the New Testament? Is that how they worshiped in the Old Testament? Does it even matter how people used to worship? Does God even care? Does God care? Is there like a right way to worship? 
and a wrong way to worship? Or is basically every man for himself and everyone just worship however you want? Well, what I discovered that day, and I'm going to try to convince you of this today. I discovered something that day, which I always knew, but that really confirmed it from, from the mouth of somebody other than myself, is that the way we worship does matter. The way we worship does matter. It matters a lot. And it matters a lot to God, but more importantly, it matters a lot to us. And that's what I want, want to convince you of here today, that it's not a matter of we need to worship a certain way because God will be angry if we don't. That's not the discussion. What I'm telling you is that we were made a certain way. We were made a certain way in the image of God. And just like the moon exists to reflect the light of the sun, the moon has no light in and of itself. The moon is there just to reflect the sun's light. We were made to reflect the glory of God. Of ourselves, we have no glory, we have no honor, we have nothing good. But we were made to reflect God's glory. And what that's called when we reflect the glory of God is called worship. Worship is when we reflect the good that God has given to us, his providence, his sovereignty, his justice, his goodness, his mercy. When we reflect it back to him, that's called worship. And I believe that worship was meant to be a certain way. Worship was prescribed by God to be in a certain manner. And we will never find true fulfillment until we understand that kind of worship. That's my opening statement to you, and we'll see why. Let's take a step back. Let's take a step back and try to uh, make sure we have all the right terminology and definitions together. We're going to talk today about liturgical worship. First, let's define the word liturgy, okay, or liturgical. Let's try to understand what does the word liturgy mean. Liturgy is not a spiritual word. It's not a church word. It's used as a church word today, but it literally only means the work of the people. Liturgy means the work of the people. So a group of people doing an activity together are liturgying, okay, in the, in, the, in the Greek. They are liturgying. That's what liturgy means. Now, we today use it to mean a group of people worshiping together, okay, so it's kind of used in that context, but that's not the original word. The word just means a group of people doing an activity. That's why for us, we have many liturgies here in the church. We have the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is the main worship that we do on Sunday mornings. When we do a baptism, that service, okay, the word service today, we would actually, the more traditional word, we'd say that's not a baptismal service, that's a baptismal liturgy. When we have a funeral, there's not a funeral service, okay? That's a funeral liturgy. The word liturgy means a group of people coming together to do something. Liturgy doesn't mean communion, okay? Liturgy and communion don't mean the same thing. We kind of connect them together, but I, I, I kind of put it this way. Liturgy is the context in which the communion happens. Liturgy is the context. Liturgy is the stage upon which the communion takes place. Think of it this way, is the example that I always give. It is, liturgy is to communion what a bedroom is to marital intimacy. It's not the same, but you can't separate the two. Because the context in which the intimacy happens is the bedroom. And without going too far into this topic, because I obviously don't want to go into this topic, it should happen there, okay? That's the right place for it to happen, okay? That's not to say that it's an impossibility to happen other places, but this act was designed to take place in this context. It's the same thing with communion and liturgy. So we'll kind of talk about the two back and forth, but just realize one is the vehicle, one is the act, okay? But they're, they're not the exact same thing. Who said that communion can only happen in liturgy? Who said that communion is supposed to happen in liturgy? Why can't communion happen when I'm by myself? 
Why can't communion happen when I am, you know, reading the Bible? Why can't communion happen when... Who said that communion, that communion with God should happen around a table with bread and wine? Who said that? Jesus said it. That's who our church is. Jesus is the one who established the church. Matthew chapter 26, written about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and Matthew and Mark and Luke. says, and, at, and Matthew 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Who said that communion happens around a table? Jesus. Who said that communion happens through bread and wine? Jesus. Who said that communion is connected with giving of thanks? Jesus. Giving of thanks, by the way, another word I forgot to define is Eucharist. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. Okay, again, it, we've made it a spiritual word, but it just literally means giving of thanks. So who's the one who said communion, liturgy, table, bread, wine? Okay, Jesus is the one who said it. Now, for those of you who maybe are new to the Orthodox faith, okay, maybe you grew up in Catholic school, and you heard about communion and bread and wine become body and blood. That's just kind of weird. I didn't think real people actually believe that. Like, I say bread and wine equals body and blood. If you're Orthodox, you say, amen. Indeed. We eat, we eat body and we drink blood every Sunday. Yes. If you're not Orthodox, then maybe this is a little bit foreign concept to you, which is totally normal. Okay. Drinking blood is a strange concept. Eating flesh also a strange concept. And I tell you that if you say, that's kind of weird, that's a little mystical, a little spiritual, it's kind of weird, I say you're not alone. 2,000 years ago, people said the same thing to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 53. Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Like bold, straightforward. Eat flesh, drink blood. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. I know it sounds weird, but this is, according to Jesus, an essential fact in Christianity. What he's saying right here is the idea of my blood and my body, you consuming it, is a critical fact. Like no one can look at this and say, Jesus thought it was like not that big a deal. And he made a big deal out of this body and blood thing. And you say, again, that's weird. Well, look at what happens at... Look what happens a few verses later. Therefore, verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus said, this flesh, you eat it. They said, this is hard. This blood, you drink it. So this is hard. And he said, how can we understand this? And what does this mean? Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. He did not say, no, 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 don't worry. It's just a symbolic thing. He did not say, no, 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 whether you do or you don't, it's like a matter of preference. He didn't say that. What did he say when they said, this is hard, we can't understand it? He let them walk away. And several people walked away from Jesus because they couldn't understand this concept of communion. The key with understanding the idea of communion is understanding I'm about to say this, and I'll explain it, okay? So be careful. This may be a big sentence, but I'm about to explain it. The Eucharist, which is communion, is the fulfillment of Christ's ministry on earth. The Eucharist 
which is where we receive communion in a liturgical context, is the fulfillment of Christ's ministry on earth. Why did I say that? How can I say that? Jesus came to this earth for what purpose? Jesus came to this earth for what purpose? If I say to you, Jesus came to earth to blank mankind, you would say, save, okay, or heal, okay, but to save mankind, you would say he came for salvation. He came to save us. He came to save us. Well, I ask you the question, how is mankind saved? How is mankind saved? In a few weeks, not next week, the week after, we're going to talk specifically about our orthodox understanding of salvation. We'll talk about that, but just how is mankind healed? Is mankind healed through reading the Bible? Is mankind healed through prayer? Is mankind healed through uh, uh, getting together and drinking good coffee on Sundays? How is mankind healed? Mankind is healed only one way, by uniting with God, because that's what salvation meant. Salvation was needed because mankind and God was apart. So the only way that man could be saved or the situation could be healed was that mankind and God had to be in communion. That was the purpose of his coming, was to create communion again when there had been distance between God and man. And that is fulfilled in the Eucharist. St. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God will to make known. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you? The hope of glory. The mystery which has been hidden has now been revealed, and that is that now Christ can live within man. Think of how mind-blowing a concept this had to have been for people in the first century. Like we got to take it for granted. They knew God. Go back to what did they know? They knew God from Moses. What was God like with Moses in his relationship with people? Could you say that God of Moses could dwell inside humanity? No, God of Moses was up on a mountain, and there was thunder and there was lightning, and people were scared to approach him, and he said, don't nobody come near this mountain because there's thunder and lightning, and anyone who goes might get killed. And that's why God said, you know what? You're going to make a little tabernacle over here, and I'm going to dwell there, but no one come near that tabernacle. Because only as one guy, one day a year, can enter in. He comes in with fear and trembling. Everyone else, stay back. And then eventually, Jesus came and said, okay, guys, let me tell you what. This God of Moses, who you said is scary and hard, he's actually, I'm him, and he's nice, and I'm with you, and I sit by your side, and we have a meal together, and we share, we talk. And they said, this is mind-blowing, that God could be next to us. And as he kept on teaching, kept on teaching, and then eventually he sent him his Holy Spirit and said, actually, God, not scary God, not even next to you, God. The fulfillment was inside you, God. You weren't ready for it back then because you didn't understand. But that's the goal is to reach the point of God living within us, not God beside us, but God living within us. And that is fulfilled at the Eucharist. Quote right here from what Jesus said at the very end of his life, just to show you that this was the fulfillment of his ministry. Jesus prayed, and he prayed that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they would be like you and me and me and you. Oneness, communion. That they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Clearly, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that Jesus cared a lot about this idea of one, that I in them and them in us, that God wants man to be his tabernacle. 
that God wants man to be his home, that God wants to dwell inside mankind. And I give you a nice quote here from one of our church fathers, St. John Chrysostom. He writes this. He says, we receive within us, maybe you don't think about this when you talk about communion, but we receive within us the same body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was born in the manger of Bethlehem, the same body that walked on the Sea of Galilee, the same body that was crucified on Calvary, the same body that was resurrected from the tomb, the same body that ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. There is no power in life greater than this. I tell you, God dwells within us, and you say, that's the goal of everything that we do. That's the reason why we read the Bible. That's the reason why we pray. That's the reason why we come to church, so that God could dwell inside man. Okay, now, next step of my argument. Communion is the goal. Eucharist is the goal. But why does it have to be liturgical? Why does it have to be so structured and formal and rigid and long? Why so much standing? Someone one time told me, he said, liturgy would be much nicer if we could just sit down the whole time. Like he said, I would have done from the very beginning if it was seating instead of... Why does it have to be so rigid? Why can't it? Good question. I think that's a great question. I agree 100% with the question. That's a valuable question to ask. Why does it have to be this way? And we need to ask that question. Well, who do we ask the question to? I think our problem is we're asking the wrong people. I think our problem is we're asking us. And I think we need to direct that question to God. Why? Let me ask you a different question. You have a uh, birthday party uh, next week. You have to go buy a birthday present for a party next week. You're going to go today to the store, and you're going to buy a birthday present for a party next week. What are you going to buy? What are you going to buy? Huh? What are you going to buy? You have a birthday party. You have, uh, you have a birthday party today. You have to go to the store and buy a birthday present. What are you going to buy? How are you going to make the decision of what to buy? What piece of information do you need to know? Who's it for? You need to know who's it for. Someone said budget, not the budget. You need to know who it's for. <laughs> Although budget is very good, okay? You need to know who it's for. Because if, the, if it's a present for my, my two-year-old nephew... Different than my 72-year-old father. Different from my uh, co-worker who is a uh, single man versus my uh, boss who is a grandma of, of seven. The gift is determined not by the giver, but by the recipient. This is logic, right? I stand up here and preach. How do I decide which words to use? Who's listening to me? So if someone's listening to me is this big, I may use different words. Someone listening to me is of your caliber and stature. The words that I share are based on the audience in front of me. This is logic, right? The recipient, not the giver, determines the nature of the gift. The recipient, not the giver, determines the nature of the gift. Worship is directed towards who? Who is the recipient of worship? Me? Is worship for me? Or is worship for God? See, our problem in life is we ask the wrong question. We ask the question of how do I want worship to look? How do I want worship to look? How do I want to worship God? 
which is a great and valuable question, but it's really not relevant to our discussion. The proper question is, how does God want worship to look? God, how do you want me to worship you, not how do I want to worship you? And the problem that we have today, the problem that we have today is we have flip-flopped the audience and the giver. We have flip-flopped who's giving and who's receiving. And we have made it, forgive me, it sounds sacrilegious, forgive me. We have made God the servant and ourselves the master. And God, on Sunday, this is how I want to worship. And I don't want to stand. And I want it to be long. And I want this kind of music. And I want this kind of... And we have made it that God has to come on Sunday to worship us. As opposed to us coming saying, God, we're coming to worship you. Now, how do we know how God wants to be worshipped? Do we know how God wants to be worshipped? Is there a way? Is there a way that we can discover? How does God want to be worshipped? Is there anywhere we can look? Where are we going to look in the Bible? Does God tell us in the Bible how he wants to be worshipped? Oh, yeah. From the very beginning of the Bible, the very, very, very first thing that we see in the Bible is that worship is a part of people and they, how they interact with God. And God is very clear. I'm going to bring you a short passage. It's a long passage, but I'm not going to talk about it. But just to see you, just so you see the idea behind the way God thinks about worship. This is a passage from Exodus chapter 29 about how they used to consecrate priests. Okay, just a random passage. I could have pulled 100 passages, but I want you to, to see the principle behind, does God care how he's worshipped? Look what he says. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, you shall make them of wheat flour. God was the healthy, the whole wheat, like from the start, okay? You shall put them in one basket and bring them to the basket, and bring them in the basket, I'm sorry, with the bull and the two rams. It goes on. We're not going to read every verse, but just passages. You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram. And you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. I don't care about the details of this passage, but answer me one question. Does God care about how worship is done? God seems, forgive me, again, sounds sacrilegious, kind of like a micromanager here, doesn't he? Like one ram this, one basket this. Okay, what if it's two baskets? What if it's not the 100% whole wheat? What if it's multigrain? Like, what's a big deal? Hey, take it easy, God. At the end of that passage, end of the chapter, God says this. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. And you could go throughout the entire, especially book of Exodus and Leviticus specifically, and you could find chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of God giving very specific instructions and make sure that you do according to all that I commanded you. Make sure you do according to all that I commanded you. I don't care so much about the details right here, but what I want you to see is that does God care about how to be worshipped? Oh yeah, he cares. He cares at a great level of detail, a painful level of detail. When God told him how to build a tabernacle, he told him exactly how big the wood was to be, exactly how many beams to be, exactly how big the door, exactly how high the ceiling, exactly what kind of curtain. He told him what kind of rings to use to hang the curtain. Like, come on, like, let them make a decision here and there. Like, you can't make every decision yourself. God cares. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. I say, okay. The details are Old Testament, but the principle is the same. Is our audience of our worship the same audience of the Old Testament worship? 
is the recipient of my worship today, the same as the recipient of Moses' worship thousands of years ago. Is the audience the same? Yes. And therefore, what I say, even though the giver may differ, if the audience is the same, the worship should reflect the same principles. And that is that God cares. Our problem today is we flip-flopped. We made God the, the, the giver, and God has to give us what we want. That's why if you go around modern context of churches today, you can go to, you can go to one church and you can find all kinds of different services within that one church. And you can find a church right next door which has the same beliefs, completely different way of worshiping. Traditional worship, contemporary worship, hip-hop worship, uh, slow jazz worship, like whatever the worship style may be. Why do you have so many different styles of worship by people who believe the same thing? Why? Because the people are different. And they're basing it on themselves. So today, I'm in the mood for this, so therefore the worship is this. A hundred years ago, the style was different, so the worship was different. Well, in the Orthodox Church, the worship stays the same. Because a hundred years ago, and a hundred years from now, the recipient of the worship is the same, and God is unchangeable. Therefore, our worship, while I don't want to say it'll never change in a, in a, a cosmetic sense, okay, of course it will, like the languages will change. The church started in, in, in like as a persecuted church in underground, okay? And then you had cathedral churches, and then you have George Mason University Church. So the, the, the outside, the cosmetic will, will, will differ. But the substance, the structure, the format, what we do will never differ. Because the God to whom we offer the worship is the same God that Moses worshipped, same God that David worshipped, same guy, God that Peter, Paul, and all the rest of those guys worshipped. And therefore, the structure will always look the same. Now, last piece of my argument right here, and then I make my final statement. Okay? The principle needs to be the same. But why does it have to be liturgical? Why is liturgical worship? Like, why does it have to be liturgical? I have an answer for you. I believe it has to be liturgical for two reasons. The first reason, because liturgical worship is biblical worship. Liturgical worship is biblical worship. And anyone who studies the Bible will tell you exactly what I just said. The liturgical worship is biblical worship. And it's clear from page one of the Bible to the final page, that structured worship was the way God designed it. Let's start with the Old Testament. Is it, can you look in the Old Testament and see traces of liturgical worship, the concept of liturgical worship? Can you see that in the Old Testament? Of priesthood, of table, of, of, of incense, of an organized and structured pray at this time and pray at this time. Can you see that in the Old Testament? Absolutely. The Old Testament is very easy. And that's what some people accuse us of. Say, y'all are an Old Testament church. Y'all are following the Old Testament way. I'll show you how liturgical worship is New Testament as well in a second. But I'll just tell you this. The idea of you're following the Old Testament, to me, that's not a criticism. That, to me, is a compliment. That validates what we do. Because where did the New Testament come from? From the Old Testament. And the guys in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, James, John, those guys, those guys were following the Old. They didn't start from scratch. They were building upon what was given to them, which was an Old Testament structure. So basically what you're telling me is, you tell me that I look like the guys like Moses. I look like guys like David. I look like guys that like Elijah. I look like them. And I say that doesn't negate liturgical worship. That confirms it. Because again, the audience is the same, one and the same. But I'll give you Old Testament. Okay, just because I'm being nice to you today. I'll give you Old Testament, and I won't show you the biblical references from the Old Testament, even though they're lengthy, and there's no difference to us between the God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. How about New Testament? Can we see liturgical worship in New Testament? Absolutely. I'll give you one verse right here, and I could have brought you a couple more. 
Acts 13 verse 2 says, speaking in the, in the first century, early church, powerful church, it says, and they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said to them, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Key word there, minister to the Lord. Minister to the Lord, A is first of all, it's connected with fasting there. That word ministered doesn't mean ministered in the sense of um, prayed or ministered in the sense of they were doing a community service. That word ministered in the Greek is litorgonton. Litorgonton sounds a lot like liturgy. Literally, one can define this, translate and say, now as they liturgied and fasted, so when it says as they ministered to the Lord, it meant in the context of a minister of the altar, a minister of the Eucharist. It was saying as they ministered and fasted, which is exactly what we do when we come on Sundays. I come as a minister of the sacrifice, and therefore I fast before I come, and they minister to the Lord. St. Paul also refers to himself many times in, in his epistles as a minister of Jesus Christ. But when he uses the word minister, he uses the same word, this liturgonton word, which means a altar minister. Okay, think of it like in Catholic school, we had like altar boys. Okay, that's what it means. It means someone who is serving, not just serving God in a symbolic sense, but in a liturgical sense. And you see right here in the first century early church that you have signs of liturgy and liturgy is not boring and liturgy is not dry and liturgy is not sleepy. In fact, as they're praying liturgy, what's going on? The Holy Spirit is speaking to them. So anyone who says liturgy is dead, I say liturgy is not dead. Uh, liturgy is not dead. You know who's dead? You're dead. Don't say liturgy's dead. People tell me liturgy's boring. I say liturgy's not boring. You're boring. And just because you're boring and you're dead and you don't understand and you come in with no spirit and nothing inside you and then you blame the, the liturgy where clearly the Holy Spirit is speaking and was given to us by God? Not true. Liturgical worship is biblical worship. And you know why liturgical worship is biblical worship? Here's actually the real reason that liturgical worship is biblical worship. Because liturgical worship is heavenly worship. Liturgical worship is heavenly worship. We see liturgical worship in the Old Testament. Let's do it this way. We see liturgical worship in the Old Testament. We see liturgical worship in the New Testament. We see liturgical worship in the early church, the first centuries. We see liturgical worship for 2,000 years since that New Testament early church. We've seen liturgical worship throughout the history of mankind. Do you know why? Because something predates even biblical liturgical worship, which is heavenly liturgical worship. And I tell you that in heaven, the worship is liturgical. And you say, hey, wait a minute, Father, you really stepping out on a limb here. You're taking a shot. It's easy for you to say because no one's ever been to heaven and no one knows what it's like in heaven. Well, Maybe we can find some references from the New Testament. St. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 8, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, here's the key phrase, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See, you, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. St. Paul says in more than one place, that what they were doing in the Old Testament, he's describing Old Testament worship. He's saying the way Aaron and Levi and, and all the priests back then, you know why they were doing it? God told them to do that. Why? 
because they were serving a copy and shadow of what's in heaven. What's that mean, copy and shadow? Think of it this way. Think of I have a, a car right here in front of me, a nice, shiny, red Corvette car right here, the real deal. Here's a car. And then I take this light and I shine the shadow of that car down there on the ground. You can't see the car, but you can see the shadow. Can you learn about the car from the shadow? Can the shadow teach you things about the car? Yeah, absolutely. You can tell whether it's taller or longer. You can tell roughly how big it is. You can tell, you know, uh, what shape it is. Is it, is it square? Is it circle? Whatever. Like, you can tell some things. But clearly, you can't see everything. Now, let's say I took you from a shadow, and then I brought you a picture, a photograph in full color. You look at the picture, and then you say, oh, man, compared to the shadow, wow, this is completely different. But is it completely different? It's the same thing. It's just a picture. The picture showed us details, showed us colors, showed us different uh, how everything works together. But the real deal is when you get in the car and you drive it around. And you're driving in that car and you say, that shadow, get rid of that worthless shadow. I don't need no picture. I'm driving the real deal. Well, the real deal is the kingdom of heaven, which we will experience one day when we finish life on this earth. The Old Testament was the shadow. The New Testament was the copy. In the Old Testament, God said, this is how it's like up here, but y'all aren't going to get this. What I'm doing, I'm going to shine a shadow. And the shadow was, I like structure. I like order. I like this group of people. We call them priests. And I'm not saying they're the greatest things since sliced bread. Some of them maybe, but I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, I like there to be like an order. I like there to be like someone standing here who has these tasks. I like there to be sacrifice. I like there to be things that are killed, offered by killing. Shadow doesn't really make sense. New Testament, Jesus said, well, let me tell you, the sacrifice is me. The killing is not a ram. It's not a bull. It's me, the true lamb of God. And the priesthood was not like they did it in the Old Testament where they thought that the priesthood meant this. This is what the priesthood really means. But he's not getting rid of the priesthood. He's not getting rid of the sacrifice. He's not getting rid of the altar. He's showing them what it really means. And I'm telling you, in the end, we're going to get up to heaven. And we're going to say, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. Because then it'll all become clear. Now again, it's easy for me to say that because you can't prove it. Easy for me to say heavenly worship is liturgical. Can we prove it in any way? Is there anywhere in the Bible, is there anywhere in the Bible where someone had a vision of heaven and wrote about that vision? There are two places. Book of Revelation, New Testament, and Old Testament where? Isaiah. Ezekiel did, but uh, different. He didn't really focus so much on this. But Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read both of those passages, and I want you, as you see those passages, you tell me what does that sound a lot like. We'll start with the Revelation one. Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 elders. Elders is another word for presbyters or priests, okay? But we'll stick with elders. 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. What do you see here? You see a throne, something in the middle, fire, guy dressed in white, gold crown on his head. Does it sound about right? Okay, let's continue to read. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. 
So saying around this throne, they had these scary creatures. That's about right. <laughs> and then it goes on, verse 6. Oh, sorry, this is the Isaiah passage. Okay, so we'll stop right here. This, so this is the first thing we see. Throne, fire, guy dressed in white, gold crown, scary guys all around. This doesn't look or sound like worship in most modern-day churches, but it looks a lot like what we do here. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah gets a vision. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Y'all ever heard that expression before? Anyone who's ever attended a liturgical service, we say that multiple times. That's the hymn of the seraphim, which we sing on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis. I actually say it more than once. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is full of his whole glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Smoke is what? Incense. If you come into an Orthodox service, you will never see one without incense. Talking about we go do a prayer of blessing in a home, there's incense. There's always incense. We like incense. Some people say incense is so antiquated. So Catholic, so old school. And I tell you, I'm going to call time out right here, and I'm going to call you out on this one. Saying that we don't want incense in our worship is the epitome of me telling God what I want, not him telling me what he wants. You can't read the Bible and avoid the fact that God likes incense. God likes incense. From the Old Testament, they offered incense. We see here in the kingdom, okay, it says the priest, they're offering incense. And, and, and for Jesus' first birthday, one of his three gifts was Incense. Old Testament, New Testament, afterwards, you can't avoid this. And if you say, like, I'm not saying you got to like incense, but I'm saying for me to say, I don't want incense in my worship is me telling God or God telling me, like, who's the worship really about in the end? And it gets most clear right here. All right, verse five. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why do we say, Lord, have mercy a thousand times? Because when one is in the presence of God, one can do nothing other than say, woe is me, I am undone. Lord, have mercy on me. And then the, the climax at the end. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Sounds a lot like communion. What do we do every Sunday when we gather here together? We gather around a throne. We light a fire. We dress in white. We put gold crown on our head. We put the four living creatures all around us. We sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. We say, Lord, have mercy. Woe is me. We are undone. And then at the end, we line up in rows. Okay, a row right here and a row right here. And we come and we open our mouth. And then an angel of God puts something in our mouth. An angel of God gives to us from the altar something which we cannot touch with our hands, but something which he takes with a special tool that he's been gifted. And he says to us what? He says, your sin is taken away. Or, said another way, this is given to you for the remission of sins and eternal life to those who shall partake of him. This, this is why we worship. This is why we worship. This, this moment. We don't worship 
to be inspired. We don't worship to hear a nice message. We don't worship because we enjoy singing. That's not why we worship. Those are all tools, means on the path to this is why we worship. This is what you and I need as humanity. This is all the problem in the world today is because we're lacking this. Because I spoke about this in the sermons that you here during the liturgy. The problem in the world today, when we don't have this, we don't have his life inside of us, then we go crazy, and then we become corrupt, and then we cannot live healthy lives. Then you have people shoot people for no reason. Then you have people prejudice against people for no reason. Then you have people lie, cheat, steal. Why? Because we don't have him inside us. And what I'm telling you, what the world needs today is not a better sermon. The world doesn't need better singing. The world doesn't need more Bible studies. What the world needs today is healing. And the healing that can only come from him inside you. Quote here from a man named Elder Sofford. He said this. He said, in the liturgy, we offer our temporal life with all its concerns. And in exchange, God gives us his divine life, which is eternal. We put all our life, all our repentance, all our thanksgiving, our intercession, the entire content of our heart and our prayer, into the gifts of bread and wine which we offer to God, and in response, he places his own life in the holy gifts and offers them back to us. I love this quote. This is what liturgical worship is all about. This is what we need. I get worried that many people, when they come to choosing the church on Sunday, it's more about me than about God. I'm choosing where I would like to go to get a nice spiritual experience, where the people are friendly, where the coffee is good. I'm saying all that stuff is great. Believe me. We need to be friendly. We need to have inspirational message. We need good coffee, okay? We need good coffee. That stuff is great. But all that stuff is secondary. What I need and what you need, the reason we come to church on Sunday is we don't need a spiritual experience. We don't need, you don't need to hear a message from me. I cannot bring healing to you or to your world or to this world. I cannot. As much as I would love to, I cannot. All I can do is point you to the true source of healing. And that is him in science. Liturgy, liturgical prayer, is where we exchange our lives for the life of Jesus. And I love that quote that I said before, that it's not the bread and the wine. It's not that it's not bread and wine that we offer and that he pours himself into the bread and wine. It's ourselves that we offer in the bread and the wine. It's not the bread and the wine. It's ourselves. It's our prayer. It's our faith. It's our repentance. It's our thanksgiving. That's why we don't just show up for communion at the end of the liturgy. We don't just show up and say, what time is the meal? We come and we pour ourselves in. And we offer our prayers. And we pour in everything that we have. And we put it all in this bread. And all in this wine. And then we take it and we throw it on the altar of God. And we say, here God, you take it. We offer this to you. You know what he does? He says, okay, I'll take it. And I give it back. He did a little hocus-pocus behind his back here when no one was watching. You know what that hocus-pocus was? He switched. He said, you gave me your life. I'll give it back the same bread with my life. That's what we need on Sundays, ladies and gentlemen. This is why we do liturgical worship. We don't need to be uplifted. We don't need to, to, to be inspired. Those, again, those are all good things, but what we need is to give our earthly life in front of God that he gives us his divine life back. I give him my corrupt life 
gives me his perfect life. I give him my greed, my anxiety, my lust, my selfishness. I bring all this and I pour it into those gifts. And he breaks it, blesses it, and he gives it right back to himself. This is why we worship. Because when we exchange our life for the life of Jesus, and I hope that uh, if you've never experienced liturgical worship, Okay, I invite you to join us. I invite you to join us any Sunday. We begin liturgical worship. We begin with the morning prayer at 8.30 every Sunday, but the, the, the liturgy of the Eucharist begins at 9 o'clock in the morning, go from 9 to 11. I invite you to come. And if you come, no one's going to judge you. And if you can't stand up the whole time, you want to sit down. Okay, no one's going to tell you uh, you don't know the hymn. No one's going to say nothing to you. You're going to stand. We're going to give you a book to help you follow along. you see all the prayers up on the screen. And you will find it foreign. Okay, and you will say this is a strange uh, thing, okay, but you will see with time that uh, there's something powerful there. Uh, let's stand up together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God, amen. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for bringing us here today. We thank you for the life that you give to us in your Son. Thank you that you sent your Son into this world to become like us, so that we, Lord, can become like you. We pray that you help us to worship you as is pleasing to you, not as is pleasing to ourselves, but as you desire to be, to be worshipped, and as you know that we need in the deepest part of our soul to worship you in such a way. Bless every single person who's here, Lord, and take us deeper in our knowledge of you and our intimacy and communion with you all the days of our life. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.